Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Of course, Greg checking in from Phoenix as always. Welcome to another episode of the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. I'm Uncle Greg, and of course, the other two players, they are here. We have Brett and Bueno. Good afternoon. Players. We are players. Players, that's right. You are players. And this week, we're not falling fall from the apple tree. Last week, we had top albums of 1997. This week, we're talking about our top albums of 1999. Pretty good year for music. There was a lot of uh, fluff out there. Britney Spears, NSYNC, uh, Lou Vega, or Vega, I should say. Vega, I think it was Vega. It was, I think Vega? It was Vega. I got yeah. it right the first time. I the Mambo number myself. five. Yes, that sir. song... I, I hope he saved his money because that was the only song from him, but a lot of one hit wonders. Remember that song, How Bizarre? How Bizarre? How Bizarre? Yeah. It yeah. was around OMC. that same time. Okay. Yeah. It was right around that same time, wasn't it, though? Nah, that was a little, that would have been a little earlier, probably like 90, I want to say like 93. All right. Really that early. We were just talking about it in a newsroom recently, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that song. All right. Well, our top albums of 1999, I think this week I'm going to go first. And uh, of course, as a lot of people know, if you've heard this before, uh, I'm sorry if you're going to hear it again, but I work in alternative radio. So I remember a lot of this music in the 90s because I spun it over and over again. Um, Incubus, that's my number five. Make Yourself, the album went double platinum. It peaked at number nine on the U.S. charts. Of course, the big singles were Pardon Me, Stellar, and Drive. Now, I already knew who Incubus was because the second album, which is called Science, but it's an acronym, but Science is the album, totally different, didn't get a lot of radio play, still sold pretty well, but that's why the record label got behind Incubus on this album, and uh, it rocks. I had a, you know, a lot of people love this album. big songs they're back on tour now they kind of disappeared for a little bit but incubus they're back together uh but that was their third album in 1999 make yourself and that is my number five album of top albums of 1999 it's a great record yeah it, well, there's a lot of great songs on that and i remember just the amount of request that would come in for that song for those songs i should say we're already starting the precedent where i have never heard that album wow. oh boy well actually 
listen to science first. Science is a little bit more experimentative. It's a little bit different. Uh, and I really like that one. It's almost like you would think, wow, this band is kind of just, it sounds very local, like a local band CD. But then when they made this one, Make Yourself, they sold so many albums with that second album, Science, that gave them the push. The record label got behind this album and really made a lot of videos and it made them huge stars. You know, Brandon, whatever his last name was, every girl loved him. And uh, I still think that they do. He's just 21 years older now. Who's the next? I think it's you, Brett, right? Number five. I, I think I'm up next. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm ready to party like it's 1999. But 1999 was really a weird year for me musically. I mean, you you mentioned that it was full of like boy bands and Britney Spears and that type of stuff. You know, I was 24, 25 years old at the time. And even then, at that age, I felt woefully out of step. Uh, in fact, my favorite record by anybody, you know, outside of the O3L world was a, a blistering record of mostly 50s rock and roll covers, Run Devil Run by Paul McCartney. But uh, as far as, you know, the scope of Only Three Lads is concerned, um, I might as well also dub this episode the episode in which the British lost. Because although there were some very good albums released by some of my favorite British bands of the 90s, only one of them made my top five, which is highly unusual. So... My number five album is American. It is by Matthew Sweet, and it is in reverse. Now, Sweet was one of those artists who it was almost too easy to take for granted in the 90s. Album after album, he would effortlessly toss out melodic gems with such consistency that by the time of 1997's Blue Sky on Mars, it seemed like just another Matthew Sweet record. With in reverse, so it was obvious that he intended this to be an album, exclamation points implied, in the classic sense of the word. Tracks segued into one another, production tips were cribbed from Brian Wilson and Phil Spector, psychedelic flourishes were flown in from Revolva era Beatles, and as usual, Sweet knows his way around a pop song. This is a rich, harmonically pleasing sonic tapestry from beginning to the glorious end, which is the tour de force nine minute plus song suite Thunderstorm. If you slept on Matthew Sweet during the 90s, there is still time to right those wrongs. So that's my number five, Matthew Sweet's In Reverse. Very good artist there throughout the 90s, played a lot of his yes. music. I would say my favorite song by Matthew Sweet is probably Devil with the Green Eyes. I don't know if you guys that's heard that. One. Yeah. That is an amazing song. All right, so my number five, are you guys ready for this? Yes, we are. Oh, we're ready. Okay. When the pawn hits the conflex, he thinks like a king. What he does throws the blows when he goes to the fight, and he will win the whole thing, for he enters the ring. There's nobody to batter when your mind is your might. So when you go solo and you hold your hand, and remember that depth is the greatest heights, and if you know where you stand, then you know where to land, and if you fall, it won't matter, because you know that that's right. And this is my number five, Where the Pawn by Fiona Apple. 
Oh. You did well with that. It was tough. I tried to do it in one breath. There was a lot there. <laughs> so, so that was released in November of 9th by Epic Records and recorded at various studios in the world and was wholly written by uh, Apple herself. And in 2010, Spin Magazine named it the 106th greatest record of the last 25 years. And that long album title is actually a poem that Apple wrote in response to unfavorable reactions from readers of her unfavorable Spin Magazine cover story about her. So Richard Harrington of Washington Post called it Apple's version of Chumbawamba's I Get Knocked Down But I Get Up Again. It came from being made of fun of her, and then, of course, it became a thing I'm being made fun of. release uh, when the pawn that broke the longest uh, album title at 444 characters uh, previously held by a volume in the best album in the world ever and Chumbawamba would actually end up breaking that record with the 2008 the boy bands have won which that full title actually contains 865 characters the first single on that record uh, fast as you can was fairly popular and received moderate airplay and it reached the top 20 in the US Billboard modern rock charts and actually became Apple's first top 40 hit on the UK chart. And it was also my favorite uh, song on that album is uh, To Your Love. Pitchfork uh, actually rated this album 8 out of 10 stars, with reviewer Chip Chanko praising Apple's lyrics, saying, Apple seems older, her voice is a heartbeat soul that seems almost timeless. And a Amy Linden of Vibe also wrote, When the pond is full of images that resonate, uh, Apple's a sad, sultry woman with a sense of who she is, even if that person isn't someone she wants to be. Once again, her actually her pain brings us all joy. So this album actually sold over a million copies worldwide, and the Japanese edition has bonus tracks, one being Across the Universe, of course, by the Beatles, with Jim Keltner on drums. Top to bottom, I love this record, and that is my number five, Fiona Apple. Uh, I'll say the shorter version, When the Pawn. <laughs> great album. Yes, and she's a great artist. And in 97, when you know the song Criminal came out, alternative radio was all over it. And then she kind of was acting a little bit erratic for some people. And so she kind of dropped off the radar. But talk about a great artist who still makes great art today. Fiona Apple, I think that it's too bad that she doesn't get the press or uh, doesn't get the push or doesn't get the radio play that she should really get. Because she does really put everything honestly on her records. And I think that especially after Criminal was so huge and she was so young, and then kind of when you got into the 2000s, you just didn't hear anything about yeah, she's it. She's awesome. I love all of her music. Yeah. No, so that's I, my number five, guys. All right. Well, now we're up to my number four, top albums of 1999. I don't know if a lot of people are going to agree with this, but I love this band. Uh, I was around them early on when they first came to America. I've told you guys the story. But Bush, number four, The Science of Things, came out in October of 1999. It was their third album. Now, what happened to Bush was, of course... You know, remember 16 Stone when that came out? Huge album, Razorblade Suitcase, another big album. But then what happened was they were on Interscope Trauma. 
And I remember a lot of talk about this back then. Basically what happened was they were on Interscope. They didn't really know what to do with their alternative bands because another label mate, no doubt, that's how Bush, you know, Gavin Rosdale and Gwen Stefani met each other and got married and then had that big love affair and then got divorced as we know a couple years ago. Um, but basically the two labels started fighting over these bands because basically Interscope, they gave, you know, hey, Trauma, why don't you guys work with these bands? You're more into the alternative realm. And they became the biggest bands in the world in the mid 90s. And so then after that, Interscope said, hey, Trauma, thanks. Um, I guess we'll take the bands back. So there was a big court fight. Bush was fighting trauma, the whole thing. And so they kind of all, both bands, they were on the beach. They weren't working for a couple years. And then when they came out of the other side of that, uh, no doubt picked up right where they were. Bush came out with this album, The Science of Things, a lot of great songs. There was more electronic influences on this album. Uh, the Chemicals Between Us was the big single on this. I liked the album. It just didn't really go anywhere. And then another two, three years later, Bush was done and they broke up. But that's my number four, Bush, The Science of Things, as my top, one of my top albums of 1999. Brett, you're up. All right. For my number four, I'm wondering why I did this to myself. I chose an album that I can't exactly pronounce with ease, nor can I understand a single word of it. But that's okay because I'm not alone because much of it is sung in a made-up dialect. And that album is, I'm going to pardon my pronunciation, Algaitis Bayerjum by Iceland Sierros, released on June 12, 1999. So the title translates from Icelandic to a good beginning, and it certainly is that. Okay, so we're six episodes in, and I probably have already earned the reputation as the three-minute pop song guy. And if I haven't, then maybe I need to try harder. <laughs> so why did I pick this album then of eight to 11-minute soundscapes? Well, quite simply because it's one of the most stunningly gorgeous song cycles ever created. Lushly orchestrated, hypnotic, haunting, and life-affirming, it's as if Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden had a child with OK Computer and then was shipped off to survive in the chilly but beautiful Icelandic tundra. And you don't need to understand a word of it to be enveloped by this album's emotion and majesty. Move over, Dark Side of the Moon. This is my favorite nighttime album. Turn off the lights, close your eyes, relax, and float downstream with my number four, Sierra Rosa's Algaitis 
Beorzum. Say that three times really fast. I kid not. I don't think anyone could. <laughs> That's a crazy one. All right, Bueno, you're number four of 1999. All right, my number four uh, is called 1459 by a band, a Southern California band with an appealing combination of sunny pop, highly funky hip hop grooves, and a touch of reggae by Sugar Ray. their third studio album released january 12 1999 and that entered the top 20 and peaked at 17 and it was certified quadruple platinum uh, the album shows the band moving in a totally different mainstream pop rock sound due to the success of their single fly off their prior album floored and this album's title is of course a reference to the 15 minutes of fame critics claim the band was riding on mm-hmm. so the song glory was used in the film american pie also featured on different soundtracks and the album sound has elements of alternative rock and pop and every morning which is my favorite song in the album has been called an acoustic pop number someday and oh to the lonely hearted are uh, also previous hits kind of like resemble the, the song fly Rolling Stone actually praised the album for its diversity and not for sticking too closely, of course, to the sound of Fly, stating that the band instead goes off a deep end with gorgeous psychedelic guitar hooks, drum loops, and Mark McGrath's wise guy futon talk. So uh, David Brown of Entertainment Weekly was less positive and stated, it's generally hard to hate Sugar Ray. Still listening to this album is somewhat sad, depressing experience. The album is the sound of the band resigned to the possibility that they may not be one hit wonder kinds and that the 2 million fans who bought that last album have moved on to the bare naked ladies. Ouch. Ouch is right. <laughs> so Sugar Ray sold a different version of that album to audiences that attended their live shows. This album included five tracks not found on the retail version. And uh, the hit fly of course is on there. The original demo of aim for me, a live acoustic version of every morning and the radio edit of falls apart. Uh, Rivers, a song written in the style of, and in the tribute to Weezer frontman Rivers Como. And one last thing, they do an incredible cover of Steve Miller's song, uh, Abracadabra. You got to check that out. It's pretty cool. And that is my number four, Sugar Ray, 1459. You know, I, I know very little about Sugar Ray other than what was played on the radio, but I do know that Mark McGrath, he, he was on a couple of VH1 shows at the turn of the century. And uh, the guy knows his stuff. He's very knowledgeable in music. He'd, he'd be a good guest to have sometime on only three lads hint, it was incredible. music jeopardy that he was on rock and roll jeopardy yeah in fact yep. i when they canceled that show i had put my name in to uh to be on that show because i would have killed it. i used to clear that board every week mm-hmm. wow. 
Yep. Yeah. And then he went on to Extra, correct? He was the host of Extra for a while, yeah. but then he yep. was working 24-7 on that show. A lot of people think people on TV don't work hard. A lot of hurry up and wait. But then they're working at night because they're at the premieres and everything, getting the interviews. Then they have to go back the next morning to do the show. And it's just that every single day and every weekend. And that's why Mark McGrath finally left. And uh, the guy, the kid from that one show, he's not a kid anymore, but uh, Mario Lopez Mario saved by Lopez. the bell. Thank you. See, yep. I, that was, I was already too old for that. My little brother uh, I, used to watch. I it. wasn't, I know you were right into it, huh? I've watched my share of saved by the bell. Kelly Kapowski. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, we got to take a break right now. If you're just joining us for the first time on this only three lads podcast, we want to thank you so much. Make sure and tell your friends. Don't forget you can get us on a lot of podcast platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Apple Podcast, and of course, the iHeartRadio app. We are through number five and number four of our top albums in 1999. We're going to hear our number threes coming up after this. We may be only three lads, but with your help, we are a worldwide community of music lovers. So don't be shy. Hit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash only3lads and say hi. Give us your top fives for many of our episode topics, and we love suggestions for future episodes. Listener and dear friend of the show Ben Israel did just that, giving us his top five albums of the O3L era. They are number five, Duran Duran, Rio. Number four, The Sugar Cubes, here today, tomorrow, next week. Number three, James Laid. Number two, The Clash, Combat Rock. And number one, Echo and the Bunnymen, Ocean Rain. Thanks, Ben. That's a fantastic list. So who's next? Let's make some noise out there. Now back to the show. It's time for your Only Three Lads music news. Record Store Day, the biannual gathering around the world of music fans at record stores, featuring tons of exclusive vinyl releases, has been delayed. Originally set for April 18th, it will now take place June 20th, This, of course, a delay because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Misfits don't want their stall on a recent coffee table book. The band is suing Abrams Books for printing registered material and band-created art for Scream With Me, the enduring legacy of the Misfits. Attorneys for Abrams Books say they are confident that the limited use of content is well within the parameters of fair use. And the Psychedelic Furs have dropped a new song called You'll Be Mine. The track is the second single from the band's upcoming LP, Made of Rain, their first album in 29 years. The first tour kicks off April 13th in Key West, Florida. And that's your Only Three Lads Music News. Welcome back to the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. Now, of course, this week, the O3L Randomizer didn't really take us that far from our last episode. We are taking a look at our top albums of 1999. We're up to number three, and it's my turn to go right now. And it looks like, for me, number three is going to be the Food Fighters, There's nothing left to lose. Now, of course, this is Dave Grohl's, one of his favorite albums from the band. Uh, This is when Taylor Hawkins first got on drums. I recently heard him in an interview talk about this. Of course, uh, Taylor Hawkins was the drummer for Alanis Morissette when she was having her heyday in the 90s. And apparently uh, he would run in to Dave Grohl uh, at different music festivals in Europe. And they just were like magnets and they were just friends. And uh, Alanis Morissette asked Taylor, hey, what's going to happen when he asks you 
to join his band. And Taylor was like, never going to happen. Uh, you're crazy. And of course, now he's been in the band for 20 something years. But this was a great album. Of course, we all know the song Learn to Fly. That was that video where they dressed up as uh, Taylor dressed up as a woman. And it was really groundbreaking at the time on MTV when they used to play music videos. There was a lot of melody. There was actual singing on this album. Uh, this is where really um, Dave Grohl dialed in the quiet, loud formula. And that's kind of what the band's known for now. But basically, uh, of course, that's the Pixies and that's Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit, the quiet and loud formula. Uh, so that is my number three, Food Fighters. There's nothing left to lose. Now, it sounded to me, Greg, like you said, Food Fighters at the beginning. I thought maybe it was some sort of Weird Al parody band of Food Fighters. No, it was supposed to be the Foo Fighters, but I talk funny, and uh, it's been a long day. But we've already figured that out about Uncle Greg, right? Sometimes oh, we his love brain Uncle goes Greg. faster than his tongue, and uh, we just, you know, sometimes I give the wrong year, the wrong word, and uh, that's right. so happens that's to all of us. It keeps all us right. entertained. That's what it is. <laughs> well, good. Yes. That's why we have you two. See, we have the experts, and then we got the clown. I guess I take the clown part of it. So no, was, not at all. Don't go there. All right. Well, Brett, what's your number three this week? All right. Well, my number three is Beck's seventh album, Midnight Vultures, released on November 23rd. Beck, of course, is one of the most restless and artistically satisfying artists of the past 30 years, with two albums rarely being similar, and Midnight Vultures was no exception to that. Falling on the heels of the brilliant but rather downtrodden folk, psych, tropicalia-influenced mutations, uh, Beck wanted to just party on Midnight Vultures, like it's 1999, of course, and he turned up the fun level to 11 on this one. Beck unleashes his best James Brown meets Prince meets Africa Vambata persona to craft an electro-funky R&B-fueled alt-pop masterpiece. And most importantly, it never takes itself too seriously. Sweaty soul workouts like the single Sex Laws and Mixed Business further remove Beck from any loser slacker stigma, instead sounding more like the hardest working man in alt-pop. Google the lyrics to Hollywood Freaks for an amazing slice of comedy rap that sounds like a precursor to what Flight of the Concord set out to do a decade later. And it all culminates in the most hilariously seductive slow jam ever, Deborah. With lyrics like, I said, lady, step into my Hyundai. I want to get with you and your sister. I think her name is Deborah. I saw Beck twice on this tour, and he commanded the stage and his band like the godfather of Blue Eyed Soul. So for an exhilarating, fun, and funny robo-funk party, 
check out Beck's Midnight Vultures. That's a great album. Get Real Paid is my favorite on that one. Oh, yeah. That's a great song. Well, in 94, you know, when Loser came out, I remember because we were giving yeah. away uh, cans of uh, cheese spread, you know, as promotion huh. for that That's song. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was like, you know, get crazy with the cheese whiz. And so we were giving out cans of cheese whiz <laughs> at the radio station because it was just so different at the time. And then yeah. he just kept on building upon his artistry and he just he never disappoints he always puts out something that is groundbreaking that people try and copy and what an incredible artist that is your number three right that is my number three all right bueno what is your third album of 1999 well we got a crossover greg all right (laughs) uh incubus make yourself October 26, 1999, that came out. That thing is certified double platinum. I mean, you've already pretty much hit everything. Pardon Me, Stellar, and Drive were all the songs that came off of that record. Actually, uh, it was also, the song Stellar actually was featured in the video game Guitar Hero. It was also included as a part of the three-song pack via Xbox Live for the Xbox 360 version of Guitar Hero 2. And this album is actually listed on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. And the whole record is so much fun to listen to. You know, listen to it with an open mind. And uh, the song I Miss You is also featured on Rocksmith. That's sold over 2 million copies. So uh, that's my number three, Incubus. Make yourself. Now, did you ever go back and listen to Science? I've heard Science. I love it, too. Yeah, it's just so different. And it was, like mm-hmm. I said, it kind of sounds almost like a local band put it out. But then by the time they got to Make Yourself, definitely you hear the production and, you know, the money put into them. And that's why they sold you know what another two million, million and least. a half yeah at least yep. albums of that next album yep well i guess i have to listen to that before i die you yes. should the book says so yep <laughs> all right well we are up to number two of our top albums of 1999 here on the only three lads podcast and i had a little bit of trouble with two and one i was going back and forth back and forth back and forth but this is my list. So number two, Enema of the State from Blink-182. It was their third album. Uh, this is where they got to work with Jerry Finn from Green Day Dookie fame. Uh, now, this was in the days, as we said at the start of the show, boys band lip syncing and backing dancers. And Blink-182 came in, pissed on the cornflakes. And they had one of the biggest albums of their career end of that year. Of course, to help define the punk pop genre, skate punk. Uh, of course, the big uh, songs on there is What's My Age Again, All the Small Things, and Adam's Song was also on there. course uh, working in alternative radio we were already keen to blink 182 because dude ranch came out before this album and the song damn it was pretty big for us but then when all the small things really hit and that video hit mtv 
it exploded on remember trl it was everywhere and of course this band blew up and i remember then they were on tour with green day open for them in 2002 after this album but that's my number two enema of the state from blink 182 yeah local band here in san diego they uh actually uh tom DeLong. I don't know where the other guys went, but he went to uh, my school, Poway High, when uh, he was a year behind me. So he was he would have been class of 93. My band uh, shared a manager with them for a very brief time. But obviously, you know, somebody got dropped and it was not Blink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you ever go to Soma and see them play? I never, I've never seen them play, but I've been to Soma plenty of times. Right, Soma, of course. Tell tell people what Soma is if they're not in the San Diego area. Yeah, Soma is a, uh, well, it it moved uh, after a little while, but originally it was in the, I guess it could be kind of called like the Bay Park, Linda Vista area. And it was a pretty small club. Uh, A lot of great bands passed through there on their, you know, their rise to superstardom. Uh, Probably the best show I saw there was Oasis on their first U.S. tour. God, could you imagine that in that little club, Soma? It's crazy. I bet. All right, what's your number two, Brett? Okay, well, my number two, springboarding off of Oasis, because we've brought up this comparison on past episodes. All right, so first of all, I got to say, yes, we're following hot on the heels of 1997. So I, sorry to repeat myself a little bit by professing my love for this band. My number two album is 13 by Blur, released March 15th, 1999. Coincidentally, I don't know you know, when you guys will be listening to this episode, but that is exactly 21 years ago to this day that we are recording. Uh, It was Blur's fourth consecutive album to reach the top of the UK charts, and 13 is a messy, sprawling, difficult double LP touched by Damon Albarn's breakup with Elastica's Justine Frischman. It also finds a band breaking with longtime producer Stephen Street. William Orbit is at the helm here, fresh off of his stint with Madonna on Ray of Light, and Orbit brings the right Blur that is a pun intended to blur with songs and sounds colliding and sliding into one another so my first experience with the album was the uk vinyl which i picked up a few weeks prior to the album's us release and without having the luxury of cd indexing it was tough to tell a lot of times where some of the songs ended and others began is not without its faults. Lead single Tender plods along, in my mind, about three minutes too long, for example, but its experimental nature sounds like yet another true progression for the band. And there's an undercurrent of melancholy throughout, with tracks like Battle and Caramel providing claustrophobic catharsis, and Trim Trab and No Distance Left to Run ending the album in sad resignation. But the always brilliant guitarist Graham Coxon, who I've given props to in past episodes Uh, he also provides the poppiest moment on the record the uk number 11 single coffee and tv so while 13 is an unlucky number for some for the Mighty Blur, it's my number two album of 1999. Oh boy, I could have guessed that one. <laughs> That's when I, think I was, you did. I was just going to say, when I'm looking at albums in 1999, I saw Blur, I said, okay, what number is Brett going to pick that one? No, he wasn't yep. going to put it number one again, I have a feeling. That's what yeah. I told him earlier. 
but it was close. <laughs> it was close. At number two. At number yep. two. Yep. All right, Buena, what's your number two of top albums of 1999? I kind of did the exact same thing Brett did last <laughs> week. Uh, my number one was by the Foo Fighters, and now my number two is a crossover again with you, Greg. What's going on? Uh, the Foo Fighters, uh, There Is Nothing Left to Lose. And that album was released on November 2nd. It was their third studio album in 1999 by Roswell and RCA Records. It actually marked the first appearance of drummer Taylor Hawkins, as you mentioned earlier. And uh, Dave Grohl has stated that this album was totally based on melody and, and that it might be his favorite album that they've ever done. Prior to recording, uh, guitarist Franz Stahl was actually fired from the band as frontman Dave and Grohl. Dave Grohl felt that the guitarist had not found his place in the band. And at that point, Grohl decided that the band would just be a three-piece uh, for the record, along with Nate Mendel and, of course, Taylor Hawkins. Uh, this, this album was actually uh, recorded in a house that, that Grohl bought in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, they made the, the basement into a recording studio. Uh, and the biggest challenge, he said, was that making the record sound so good without computer programs such as uh, Pro Tools and Auto-Tune. So uh, there's been a lot of good reviews on this record, but uh, Greg Cott rated the album three and a half out of five stars, and he started by explaining that in the first 30 seconds of the album, there is a bridge to singer uh, Dave Grohl's past. He stated further comparing that album to the Goo Goo Dolls' Iris, that Grohl's punk background makes him allergic to string sections, which is kind of funny. And in another retrospective review, a reviewer for Sputnik Music, rated it three and a half also out of five and explained that it was consistent and includes the insufficient highlights overall this, this album is totally amazing i don't know if anybody's ever heard this thing it kind of fell out of fell out of way off the last album it was so great and uh you know when they went into the studio uh, they stood there and everybody's in their tuxedos and diamonds and furs and and then uh, when they went to the Grammys, they, they thought they would probably win it. And they actually did win the best album for that year and uh, made it for free in their basement. So uh, there was actually five singles released from that record. And Learn to Fly was, of course, my favorite on that. And Stacked Actors, Generator, Breakout, and Next Year. And that is my number two, Foo Fighters. There is nothing left to lose. Great album. I have to uh, commend Dave Grohl for being like one of the, the last true champions of analog sound. I, I think he always does that, tries to record directly onto tape. Yes, and that's a stuff. great pick, Bueno. Great pick. Well, Even same though with you. I it also, I know. Well, yeah. I have a, a, a Foo Fighters story because when they first came out, nobody knew it was Dave Grohl. Of course, Dave Grohl with Foo Fighters, we talked about this in a past episode, where it was kind of... He had time to kill, and so he kind of did all the instruments of that first album himself, the bass, the guitar, the drums, and he was kind of handing this out as on cassettes to his friends. So when it was released, do you guys remember a club named Gibson's in Tempe? It was right over there oh, by yes. ASU. Yes, okay, sir. so Gibson's, um, basically I'm working at the radio station, and they want us to go and do a live hit from out in front of Gibson's for this band, the Foo Fighters. So everyone's like, why would a local band or some band who's just starting out, you know, why would their label pay for something like this? And we're like, whatever, because, you know, it's money. So let's go out and do it. 
So I'm standing out there and I'm doing the call-ins. Hey, we're out here at Gibson's and this band, new band called the Foo Fighters are playing tonight. Come check them out. So this guy comes in, uh, from, from inside and comes out and tells me, he's like, don't tell anybody. But the Foo Fighters, this is Dave Grohl's new band. You know, the drummer from Nirvana. So don't tell anybody. And I took that as a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? So then, of course, my next call in, hey, everybody, guess what? This is Dave Grohl's new band, Foo Fighters. And, of course, at the time, we talked about this before, the edge was huge. And thousands of people started showing up. And, of course, Eddie Vedder was there that night. Uh, the Gem Blossoms from Tempe, they were there. All these stars were there to see this because everybody knew this was Dave Grohl's band. And, of course, they said, don't say anything, which I took as say something. And I did. And, of course, then that was a huge show. And I think people still talk about that Gibson show the very first time they were here in Arizona and in the Valley. Your contrarianism paid off. Yeah, I, because I really think it was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't tell anybody. They knew I was some young punk who would go on the air and tell everybody. And that's exactly what I did. But that is a Heck great, yeah. great album. All right. Well, hey, we still have our number ones for the top albums of 1999 here on the Only Three Lads podcast. We'll have our number one albums of 1999 after this. Here are some stories from the O3O universe, starting with a couple of long-awaited returns. First of Vapors, the fantastic mod revival band of turning Japanese fame, have announced their first album since 1981's Magnets. The new album is entitled Together and is due in April. First single, Crazy, sounds as if they haven't missed a beat in 39 years. Head over to thevapors.co.uk to pre-order a signed copy of the album. And just in time for St. Paddy's Day, the Boomtown Rats reunion album, Citizens of Boomtown, is out now. This is the Irish legend's first album since 1984's In the Long Grass, and while it's no exercise in nostalgia, it's a welcome extension of their street-savvy brand of rock and roll. And sadly, a singular legend, Genesis P. Orridge of Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV, died on March 14th following a two-and-a-half-year battle with leukemia at the age of 70. Genesis once said, any artist should stay challenged for as long as possible, and we are lucky that they stayed challenged for many years. Welcome back to the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. And right now, the world is in upheaval with a virus. But right now, this is how we escape. We were just talking about this, guys. We can escape. We don't have to worry about toilet paper. Don't have to worry about food. Don't have to worry about mask. We could just enjoy music. And this is the one thing that's bringing us all together and bringing us joy. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. All right. Well, here we go. We're up to our number one top albums of 1999 here on the Only Three Lads podcast, and it looks like it is my turn to go first. We'll see if there's any more crossover with Breno. Oh, gosh. But, um, yeah, well, well, we'll see. Now, I'll tell you what. When this album first came out, it wasn't even on my radar. Didn't even know who this band was. Didn't even know about the album. Didn't play it on the radio until a few years later. The band came out with some new music, which I really liked, which then sent me back to find this album, which I love. It's Muse Showbiz. It was their debut album. It only reached 29 on the UK charts. Of course, this album came out on Maverick, which is, of course, Madonna's record label at the time. Um, you know, this Muse was called at the time uh, Radiohead's ripoff, you know, because from our top five of 1997, Radiohead OK Computer was my top album. So, of course, when I heard this, it was like, wow. So Muse, showbiz, if you get a chance, there's this song, Uno. And the start of this song will make you want to kick things over. Yeah. 
This means nothing to me Cause you are nothing to me And it means nothing to me that I just love the songs on this. I mean, there's also uh, Sunburn and Muscle Museum are some of my other favorite songs on this album. Uh, but if you get a chance, if you've never heard Muse Showbiz, Check out some of these songs. Uno, the start. Mm. So that's my number one top album of 1999, Muse Showbiz. And we'll see if we have another redundancy with Bueno. But first, we got to go to Brett with his number one. The, the guy that you know will not have an overlap. Okay. So number <laughs> one for me <laughs> is the very definition of truth in advertising. The album is 69 Love Songs by Magnetic Fields, and 69 Love Songs is exactly what you get. Have you, have you heard this one, guys? No. I have okay. not. Okay. All right. This is a great one. So over the course of three CDs, songwriter Stephen Merritt writes the modern great American songbook on love in its various permutations. Passionate, affectionate, violent, lustful, unrequited, vulgar, funny, cinematic, romantic, boy meets girl, same sex, pets, and just about everything in between. And in just about as many different genres as you could imagine. The album credits are truly staggering. Merritt alone plays about 60 instruments on this set from zither to marxophone, with various band members and friends contributing strings and other assorted instruments. Vocal duties are split between Merritt's rich deadpan baritone and four other singers for a variety of different perspectives and textures. This is obviously a massive and ambitious undertaking, and not every single one of the 69 songs is totally successful, but everyone weaves perfectly into the overall narrative. What's amazing is that a high percentage of these songs sound like modern standards had the Tin Pan Alley or Brill Building era extended into 1999. At least we are treated to a wrenching cover of The Book of Love by Peter Gabriel a few years after this album. Love is long and boring. No one can lift the damn thing. It's full of charts and facts and figures. And instructions for dancing But I I love it when you read to me And you You can read me anything I was lucky to see them perform all 69 songs live over two nights in San Francisco, and it was truly a transformative experience. In fact, the uh, the opening act was actually a reading uh, of a novel by Daniel Handler, who later found fame as Lemony Snicket of A Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, that book series. So for a late contender for consideration amongst the most important albums of the O3L era, I present my number one, 69 Love Songs by Magnetic Fields. I'll have to check that out. Same here. It is a... It is a dizzying kaleidoscope of an album. Well, 
I like the way you just said that. Sounds I fun. Just had a mental picture. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay, wow. There, there's a huge like streak of just you know wry humor in it that I love. You always bring us those curveballs. That's what we like. Thank you. Thank Brad. you. All right, Bueno, you're number one. All right. Before I hit my number one, uh, I just want to mention uh, Mark Hoppus' birthday today too. So we didn't mention that before when you guys did Blink One Eighty Two. So my number one is by a band I know you guys have all heard of them. Uh, it's called Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. Oh, yes. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. I know. So uh, <laughs> the seventh studio album by them was uh, released on June 8th of 1999 on Warner Brothers Records and, of course, uh, produced by Rick Rubin. And that record was recorded between December 98 and March of 99 in Los Angeles. The album's subject material incorporates various sexual innu innuendos uh, commonly associated with the band, but also contain more varied themes than previous outings, including death, contemplations of suicide, California drugs, globalization, and travel. This album was actually the most uh, commercially successful studio released with over 15 million copies sold worldwide, over 7 million in the United States alone. And that record actually spawned six singles, uh, and uh, including Other, Other Side, Californication, uh, the Grammy-winning uh, Scar Tissue, and that album actually peaked at number three on the U.S. Billboard 200. My favorite song on that album is incredible. It's Parallel Universe. Most of the material lyrics uh, throughout the song in the album came from the personal professional turmoil that the different members of the band were going through. This resulted in a sensible approach that one might not expect from a band whose followers are actually skate punks and fraternity boys. So Anthony's main point behind this album was to tell tales of wandering souls who lost their way searching for the American dream in California. Huh, I wonder who else has been doing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Rick Rubin actually produced uh, their two previous records. However, the Chili Peppers decided to look for other producers and they went after actually David Bowie, but unsuccessfully that didn't happen. So they stuck with Rubin all the way through the whole record and the recording I said took place in Los Angeles. And uh, following the, uh, the recording process, the band played Scar Tissue, Other Side and California Canation to their managers and they decided that Scar Tissue would be the lead single for the album. So. This is an incredible record. I'm pretty sure everybody's heard this before, but this was definitely my number one. And uh, what happened was to uh, the band actually put, played various proms across the country to pr promote uh, Californication. It actually sprouted a competition which called upon high school students to write essays on how they would make their schools better, safer, happier, more rocking places so that they didn't have to go to school afraid. So if you wrote that essay, you actually got a free ticket to the show, so that's pretty cool. Uh, that album actually sold uh, 
189,000 copies in the first week. And then after that first week, it went to number seven, certified platinum six times and uh, over six million ship, six million copies. And it actually peaked number five on the UK charts. And it was certified platinum over there uh, four times. And uh, in Germany, it was actually the band's best-selling album, staying on that uh, charts for 114 weeks, selling wow. more than 750,000 copies, and then reached number one in these following countries, Australia, France, Italy, New Zealand, Norway, and Sweden. And that is my number one, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. Wow. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I did not realize that that album, I knew it was big, yeah. but I did not realize it was that big. I, I can't believe that it uh, was actually bigger than what was uh, blood, blood sugar, sugar or whatever, oh, whatever yeah. that is. Yep. So that that's amazing. And, and my second thought is um, I hope they didn't play those proms just wearing socks because that can get you arrested <laughs> at most high schools across the country. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were dressed. OK, good. To a certain degree, at least. <laughs> and Bueno, you're right. That should have been on my list. Um, I saw that, but I was going back and forth with the bush. Because, you know, I, I just really enjoyed the Bush stuff. Uh, but you're right. That should have been on my album. That should be my number four. But I did put Bush in there. That was the one I thought we were going to cross over on for sure. Oh. Uh, and I thought we were going to cross over on the Bush. But I pulled Bush out because, um, you know, because I know that, you know, back in 93, when you were there and I was in Tempe, actually, when I saw Bush at that one, that one small club and stuff that I thought to myself, oh, you're, you're definitely going to pick this Bush album. So I got to stay away from that one, too. Bueno, that club was called the Electric Ballroom, and that was January of 1995. The reason why I remember so well, because I was standing right next to Gavin Rosdale. Now, I'll tell you what, I've never felt so ugly until you stand next to Gavin Rosdale. Here's the story. Um, they were only this was like maybe their third day in America promoting the album 16 stone of course the bass player was in transition vamp they had a guitarist the drummer and then of course gavin now you know how people say you got that it gavin has that it whatever that magic is it he's got it because i'll never forget i had to drive the band around i picked up the tour manager they haven't even met the tour manager yet i picked him up from the airport we went to granger and was getting things for the tour and then I went and picked up the band. So then we went to a Target in Tempe, which is like McClintock and Baseline for people in the Valley here. And nobody knew who Gavin was. Nobody really knew who Bush was. If they were listeners to the radio station, the song Everything Zen was blowing up. That's why we asked them to come and do our birthday party. And that's why they were the headliners. Uh, they were a young baby band at that time. And I'm walking through Target. And again, no one knows who Gavin is. But... Women are stopping and their jaws are dropping looking at him. He had that look, you know, and then I'll never forget another thing about this show is as I'm standing right there on stage next to Gavin, he's got his guitar slung on. And uh, we had Jane says was a person who worked on the morning show, but she was standing on stage giving the stage announcements and she just felt somebody off to the side of her. So she's talking and she looks over at Gavin and just stops it's like she just like had a stroke day, 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 because he was like just standing there. And then if you ever want to see panty remover, when Gavin would stand there with his guitar and sing glycerine. Wow. <laughs> Every girl there would have his baby like that. It was just a crazy time. Nobody knew who he was. But walking through Target, you do not want to walk next to Gavin Rosdale. Just a little a little tip for those of us who may be shopping with Gavin Rosdale in the near future. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, go down our top five albums of 1999. 
on this episode of the Only Three Lads podcast. Again, my number five was Incubus, Make Yourself, Bush, number four with the science of things. Number three, Foo Fighters, There's Nothing Left to Lose. Number two, Blink-182, Enema of the State. And my number one album of 1999, Muse, Showbiz. Okay, my top five. Uh, number five was Matthew Sweet's In Reverse, which I thought actually, Bueno, you might have chosen as well, but you did not. Uh, number four, Sierra Rose. Oh, yeah, I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> Sierra Rose's 1999 album. Uh, number three is uh, Beck, Midnight Vultures. Number two is 13 by Blur. And my number one choice for 1999 is 69 Love Songs by Magnetic Fields. And my top five for 1999, uh, number five, Fiona Apple. I'm going to do the short version, When the Pawn. Number four, Sugar Ray, 1459. Number three, Incubus, Make Yourself. Number two, Foo Fighters, There Is Nothing Left to Lose. And number one is Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. We also found out Bueno and Uncle Greg have a lot of the same musical taste because we really have a lot of redundancy between the two of us yes we do. do at least as far as the late 90s is concerned it'll be interesting as we head into other years yeah, very we true. Get back into the 70s or so different experiences mm-hmm. speaking of which should we choose the topic for next week let's hit that okay here it comes we'll spin the wheel and no whammies bueno stop it stop okay well how is you know Part of me was hoping that we'd head out of the 90s, oh, no. but, but this is a little different. So this is our top five artists from the five-year stretch between 1990 and 1994. So what we're looking at right here is just the artist output from between those years, 1990 to 1994. Not albums, not songs, but artists. Okay, so from January 1st, 1990... Until December 31st, 1994, the top artist and the output, the totality, are top five artists. There we go. We have crossovers on this one. That's going to be weird. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I already have somebody who's in mind. I was like, well, she did put a lot of stuff there. Hmm." Uh, Yep. All right. Well, of course, we want to thank you once again for joining us. If you're new, make sure and come back. Get to our Facebook page. Give us your top albums of 1999 or you can give us your list from any of the past episodes. Make sure and tell your friends. Again, we are on all the podcast platforms. Brett, you got anything? It's a lot of fun. Once again, we appreciate you all being out there and your contributions to uh, making this what it is. Bueno? Yeah, thanks for listening, guys, to episode six. And definitely with this coronavirus thing going on, definitely be safe, be smart, and always, of course, be bueno. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. We do not own the rights to any of the other music featured in this program. If you like what you hear, go to your local record store and buy the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. Check out the O3L episode playlist on Apple Music and Spotify for a guide through today's show. For the latest updates, join the community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And don't forget to click the Shop Now button on our page for the coolest threads. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 